Well, I'm going to finish Jesus' teachings in chapter 11 and 12. 11 and 12, I've said, is a summation of what the prologue told us about. The prologue tells us that He's the way, He's the Word, the Word that became flesh, the Word that always existed with God, the Word that exegeted who God was. Uh, He is the manifest expression of who God is. He is the life giver. All things consist and are held in place by Him. He's the creator of all things. As the prologue told us about Him being light, and Him coming into a world, coming into His own, His own received Him not. And we talked about men loving darkness rather than light. All the things the prologue told us about Jesus, that He would do what He would say. Jesus concludes in chapter 12. Now the reason He does this is because, like I've said, 1 through 12 without the prologue, is, is going to be mainly about people that have rejected Christ, believers, uh, unbelievers, and, and, and those who follow Him superficially. And Jesus is going to sum up His teaching, why He came. And when we start next week, is going to be verse chapters 13 through 17, and that's going to be a discourse of Him in the upper room, an intimate discourse with His disciples, those He came to die for, those He chose, those who are going to speak to us in our walk with Christ. And we're going to handle that very carefully. But chapter 12 ends uh, His association with unbelievers. And the rest of the book is with His disciples and His crucifixion, His death, burial, and resurrection. So we'll start another section next week, chapter 13, if you want to read that. But chapter 12 finishes... And sums up what he's done. Remember last week we talked about uh, that Jesus in chapters 11 and 12 is speaking to three different types of people. He is speaking to, in verse 20, he is speaking to the Greeks. Verse 20 says, There were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from the that Bethesda, hard for me to say, of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Peter, Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So we see three different groups of people that are going to, Jesus is going to summarize his teaching to. We see in verse 20, we see the Greeks. Now these Greeks were, uh, they were called, as I have in the notes, uh, they were called uh, Gentile God-fearers. They may or may not have been believers. They may have been uh, seekers. They may have been those who'd heard about the miracles and they were curious. Remember, the Greeks were famous for knowledge and pursuing knowledge. Uh, And Paul spoke to them on Mars Hill. Uh, They had many gods. They had many concepts of God. They were famous for knowledge. So these these Greeks could have been just superficially uh, finding something new to think about and talk about. So we see that group of people. We see a group of unbelievers who are the most predominant of people that Jesus is going to address in this last section. And we see them summed up in verses 37 through 40. Uh, We read last week. uh, Let me just read this again. These are the unbelievers that Jesus is going to sum up to. Although Jesus had done many signs before them, this is 1237, before them they did not believe in Him. 
that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So Jesus is ministering and summing up his ministry to unbelievers. And we talked about this last week. The reference is to Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord Jesus high and lifted up in a Christophany? Some argue that it's a uh, theophany, whether it's the Father or the Son. Uh, That's not the point of today. But uh, he sees God lifted up, glorified. He falls on his face before a holy God. He realizes his inability to approach God. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And so we have this picture of the altar and the purification from the altar, which represents purification, which points to Christ's ultimate sacrifice. And then the Godhead says, Who are we going to send to tell this people? And Isaiah said, Send me. And he said, what am I going to tell them? And that's when, Jesus, that's when the theophany, or the Christophany, however you want to interpret it, tell him, go tell this people that, 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 that their eyes are going to be blinded because they have refused instruction. They've infused to believe. And so we see this, as it tells us in Romans 11, hardening happened to Israel in part so that the Gentiles, us, may be grafted into the gospel. So we see Jesus addressing Greeks, unbelievers, and then there is a group of followers. Of course, they are believers. We see them in verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him, lest he should put they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. So we said infant believers, new in the faith, they had a mental assent to Him, they were trusting Him, but they still were low on the totem pole of the process of sanctification, if you'll let me put it that way. But Jesus is going to finalize His instruction and sum up His, His teaching to this three group of people. So... Remember we talked about last week also the uh, the triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry appeared to be such a glorious thing. The people shouted, Hosanna. Remember we talked about the 118th Psalm, the Halil Psalm, the Passover Psalm. Jesus fulfills this. He comes in. They say Hosanna to Him. He, feels prof- he fulfills prophecy. He rides in on a donkey. Uh, and why did we say he rode in on a donkey? Not because of prophecy, but what did that say about his coming? Remember what we said? It was in humility. He didn't come as a Messiah king, political king, but he came as a humble servant to die a death. He came on the Passover day when the lambs were being slaughtered to fulfill prophecy, so he comes humbly on a donkey. And the next time he comes, he will come on a white horse as the king of kings. And we talked about that. But he came this first time. So he comes as triumphal entry. Seems like the whole world's following him. But unfortunately, Jesus tells us 
that all this superficial excitement, what was Jesus, what did Jesus do? And we looked at Luke. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem. He said, if this, if you would have known this your day, we talked that fulfilled the exact day spoke of in Daniel. And he was sad because he knew their hearts and it was superficial and they didn't understand why he came. We talked about that in good detail. So here we are. Let's sum this up before we get into chapter 13. Jesus teaches many things in this chapter. Let's start chapter 12. Let's start verse 23. 12.23 as Jesus sums up the why He came. First thing He says, Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. So He sums up His teaching. And the first thing he says is, the hour has come. This deviates, this delineates, excuse me, that he came in his time, in his father's time, at the exact time he was preordained to come before the foundation of the world. He has come. He has come when prophecy is fulfilled. He has come at the exact day that he he desired to come when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered. And he has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies that pointed toward a sacrifice from Genesis to Malachi about Jesus coming. The hour has come. Remember, there's been many times in previous verses and chapters that it says his hour has not yet come. So Jesus has always been in control of His timing. Uh, remember, if you look back at 5.16, remember as we sum up the first 12 chapters, 5.16, look at these different opportunities that weren't Jesus' time and, it, and they weren't the way that He came to die. He came to die on a tree. He came to, to hang on a tree and be cursed. And uh, he didn't come to be stoned, and he didn't come uh, uh, at, at these people's time. Look at 5.16. The first instances, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because they healed a man. The third sign, remember we talked about this pool of Bethesda. They sought to kill him because he had done things on the Sabbath. Jesus said, My Father's working until now, and I've been working. The Jews sought to kill Him only more because He broke the Sabbath, but He also said God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. So they wanted to kill Him then, but it wasn't yet His time. Let's look at 5, uh, we've read 5.16, we've read 5.18. Look at 6.15, another day, another time. This time, the, the people want to take him and make him their political king, their Messiah, against the purposes of why Jesus came. Look at 6.15. When Jesus perceived that they were come and take him by force, this is after he fed the 5,000, which was sign number 4. They were about to take him by force to make him king. He departed to the mountain by himself alone. This is not God's plan. He didn't come to be a Messiah king and lead the people against the Roman um, scourge, but He came to die on a cross. So that's another example of His timing and the purposes for why He came. Look at 7.6 as we look at this. 
his brothers, his family don't believe. He's about to go to the Feast of, of, uh, of uh, Tabernacles. We talked about this where he, when he described himself as the light of the world. Remember we talked about this. Look at Jesus said 7-6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it. Its works are evil. You go to the feast. I'm not going to go to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. Predictive. This is not when I'm come to die. I didn't come to die in the feast of lights. I came to die at Passover. That's going to be six months later. My time has not yet come. Jesus is total control. Verse 19, same chapter, 7. Uh, Jesus said, Did not Moses give you the law? None of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me. He knew that's why he was going to die, but not when. He didn't, it, that wasn't the time. Verse 44, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. It goes on and on and on. 859, remember this discourse, before Abraham was I am? Verse 59, they took up stones to throw at him. They thought they were fulfilling the law because he said he was God. And the, the, and the Scripture said, stone people who blaspheme. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out into the temple. He went through their midst and so passed by. It wasn't his time. And then last thing, 1031. Again, the Jews take up stones to stone him because he said, I and the Father are one. In their rage against him, they think they're protecting their law and they're trusting in their law. He said, it's not my time. But now he says in John 12, the hour has come. He's in control of it all. First thing we see. Second thing we see is that, uh, look at verse 24. The second thing we see as Jesus sums up his ministry, death produces fruit and it produces new life. And this dovetails, you know, Jesus often spoke so that people could understand. He didn't speak in difficult terms that the Pharisees did and their highfalutin attitudes. He spoke to the lay people. And he understood they were based on agriculture. And he understood they would understand this. This is going to go back to what he said, I'm the bread of life. And so he says in verse 24, as he sums up his teaching, Most assuredly I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. So Jesus is predicting his death and his burial and his resurrection. And he is prophesying that his resurrection is going to produce much fruit. His own brothers and sisters are going to obey Him. Many of His followers who are on the fence are going, to, are going to obey Him. And then He is predicting ultimately that the salvation is going to come to the Gentile world because of my death, burial, and resurrection. So He's saying, I'm going to die. And when I die, my death and resurrection is going to be bear much fruit. Speaking of the salvation of the Gentile and the Jewish world. So we see that, and we see that dovetailing what he taught in Matthew. Look at Matthew. 
this great parables is all about parables. And one of the parables he speaks of is the parable of the mustard seed. And this is undoubtedly what he was referring to. John wrote the last, was the last of the Gospels written. I know John took some of the, uh, uh, some of Matthew's scripture which was written earlier. Look what Matthew 13, 31 says. As Jesus predicted his death and resurrection is going to produce fruit. 13.31, another parable he put forth to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in the field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. This is this picture, remember, unless your faith is grain of mustard seed. And this little grain, it's very small. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, but it grows and expands. So he says salvation is like that. It's implanted with faith. That faith grows and that faith turns into a productive, saved person. And he's saying, what he's basically saying is this grows and all the birds come and nest in it. It's speaking of the salvation of the Gentile world. It comes from this seed of faith that is implanted and that it is it blossoms after he dies and is buried and rises from the dead. And it is a direct allusion to Ezekiel seventeen twenty three. And it's a direct about the birds nesting in the branches and that the birds represent the Gentile nations which benefit from the death of Christ on the cross. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. He has talked about that over and over and over in the Scriptures. And He is summing up that I came to die and my death is going to produce new life and fruit for the whole world. Everybody understand that? As He sums up His teaching. Next thing I want us to look at, and this one's very important, and I want to get your input into this so you'll think about this. It's the paradox of the Christian life. What's a paradox? Do you know know what a paradox is? The paradox of the Christian life, as Russell has said, you die to self... And when you die to self, you will live. But if you love self, and you will not die to self, you will die. That is a paradox. That is something unexpected, and it is opposite the world's thinking. It is opposite the world's system. So Jesus says, look what He says as He sums up His teaching from chapter 2 on. He says... He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, the application to us. What does it mean? What does he mean by that? When he says he who loves his life will lose it. What does it mean to love your life? Worldly. 
First John, one of my favorite verses. I remember it as a young person. Love not the world. This is the world system. This is the way of the world. This is the motivations of the world, how the world operates. Love not the world. That doesn't mean love the, don't love the people in the world. It's not talking about the cosmos, the planet. Don't love the world system. Neither the things that are in the world. He that loveth the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but as the world. The world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So Jesus says, he who loves the world system, the things of the world. And what are some of the things of the world that naturally we're going to love, but Jesus says you cannot love this thinking this system, because this system is antithetical to Christianity. It is run by the prince of the power of this air, the devil. So what are some things that we must avoid loving that are natural for us to love? Pride. And that is self-sufficiency. How many times have you been told in your life, that you are the captain of your own ship, and that you must pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and you alone <coughs> are in charge of your destiny. You don't. It's, it's it's all involved in our Americanism. It's involved in Western culture. I love Liv, Rush Limbaugh to death, but he is a champion of self-sufficiency, of pride of do-it-yourself. Don't depend on the government. Don't depend on... You depend on you. There are some truths that are not dependent on the government. But this is dangerous. And this is an Americanism. This is Western culturalism. And unfortunately, it is fomented. I love that word, but I can't say it. Fomented. Is it fomented? F-O... By pastors, easy believism, prosperity gospel people, we should not love self-sufficiency. We should not think of ourselves more highly of ourselves than we should. What else? Jesus says, you don't love the world. What else? Pardon me? Lust of the flesh. And we don't need to know what that... We don't need to describe that. It's our... It's our sexual cravings, it is our covetousness, it is our envy, it is everything that says, I want that. I won't be happy until I get that. That is a lie. And then when you got pastors and prosperity people saying, you deserve that, it's okay for you to want that, and all you got to do is give this and you'll get that because God wants you to be prosperous. I did tell you the Benny Hinn story, didn't I? So we're, we're good on that. Lust of the flesh. Benny Hinn, the guy that wears the $3,000 uh, suits with no collar. 
been preaching prosperity gospel. He has, in the last, I've heard him twice now saying, prosperity gospel is wicked, he was wrong, and he has repented of it. He said, I trusted, he said, I never read the word. He said, I trusted what other people said and what was popular. And I told people that if they would shake it down and press it and all the other theology of the prosperity people, he said, I repent, I was wrong. He said, I read the Bible now. He said, I'm understanding truths and you can only be saved by the blood and work of Jesus Christ. He says that now. I haven't seen him on TV preach, but I've heard two of his interviews. And I'm hopeful that that's from a hope. Did he? Well, well, I say that with. Well, I hope I hope he's truly repented. I do. But what responsibility foolish preaching causes? What else? Love not the world. Pardon? You can't serve God and mammon or money. Let's look at that in scriptures. It, Jesus teaches on it over and over again. Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. You cannot love this world. Jesus speaking to his disciples and to those in the crowd who listened to him, predominantly his disciples. We see this taught uh, uh, let's go, uh, let's do it in order, make it easy. Chapter 6, Matthew 19 through 24. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Is it wrong to have a 401k? Is it wrong to have a retirement plan? No. What is wrong about that? What is wrong about having a four? What is the attitude that's wrong? Depending on that, trusting in that, having faith in that, depending upon that other than God. God gives you the ability for wealth, it says, and He gives you the ability to accumulate it. He wants you to enjoy it with the right attitudes. But if you're dependent upon that and your security and your hope is built upon that, I tell you by, I tell you by experience that money takes wings and it flies away. That's right. You can't serve God and mammon. Money. So Jesus said, Don't lay up treasures for yourself on heaven. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. And you just examine yourself by the Scriptures. You ask the Holy Spirit to make that real to you, true to you, convicting to you. And there may be some of you, as I have been in one point in my life, that trusted in this, depended upon this, and that flew away, and I learned valuable life lessons from it. But, yes,
I understand that. That's good. He takes His Word. He renews your mind with His Word. But he brings your experiences into the mix. He teaches you thankfulness and trust in Him. Yes, He does. So your treasure. So where is my treasure? Where is your treasure? Jesus says it can't be in things. It can't be in stuff. It can't be dependent on this world system. Yes. Yes. What am I holding on to, Chris? You know, and I think sometimes we don't think about, because anybody that knows me knows me, family is really important to me, and I love my grandkids. But, you know, I came to a point in my life where I realized that I was putting my grandkids above God. So, I mean, it doesn't have to be big things like power and money. and I mean, anything that is in the place of God. It takes your allegiance. That's exactly right. That is a God, and that is, you know. And they were taken away from me for a period of time, and it was the hardest thing I've ever been through. But I want to tell you, I spent two years on my knees, and that's the best time I ever spent with the Lord. That's great. That's good testimony, Melanie. It's amazing that all of us. When he says you shall have no other gods before me, he don't mean that we're going to worship at a totem pole. He means all the stuff. I know people who are fiercely loyal, who struggle with this. Their families, their kids, their grandkids, and it, and it it's a great struggle with prioritizing Christ. And sometimes they win, sometimes they lose. But idolatry is prohibited. Idolatry is worse than witchcraft, Scripture says. Put your mind around that one. Idolatry. World system. Don't love the world. I think it's so simple anymore that it almost, I see so many people that they are, they idle their phones. They cannot live if they don't have a phone. It's a sad thing. And it's kind of the same way about some sports with some people. I worry about my son all the time because it's like that sports team city sports is like I know people who have kids who worship at the throne of the A&M Aggies Anything. Your kids are so involved in sports that you don't spend any family time together. You stop missing church because the kids have a ball game, and you know. Yes. There's always a struggle between those things which are doing things Mm -hmm. and those things which are best. Right. One of the uh, things we're doing in uh, our group. Matter of fact, we're going to do next week. Uh, Paul's praying for the church at Philippi, and his prayer for them is this: exactly what it's almost like. Sally's read this Bible before. He says, 
verse 9, Philippians 1, 9. And it's and as we get into the next topic, I'll, I'll get into it in a second. Paul's praying for the church at Philippi. So if you don't want to hear this next Tuesday, close your ears. In this I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may prove authentic to the things that are excellent. That word is best. And as you understand that you're a slave to Christ, you understand that you don't ask the question, is this morally right? Is this just a moral question? Is this best? And that's progressive sanctification. Is it best for me? It may not be wrong for me to do this, but is it best for me? And that's process, right? Growing in faith. That's that mustard seed growing and baking big branches. So, you cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters. What's going to happen? You're going to love one and hate the other. Nobody hates Jesus, but you demonstrate by being idolatrous that He's not your priority. So, that's uh, uh, what He's teaching here. I think we can understand that. And what does it mean? Uh, uh, what does it mean to die to this? How do you die to this? That's natural to us. How do you die to it? That is a, as Sally said, is very important to understand. Paul said, I reckon, you have to reckon yourself to be dead. You died. So you don't have, just like when you're a slave, you don't have any rights, you don't have any self-autonomy, you don't have any, uh, you don't have a, uh, a free, uh, uh, you don't have uh, any rights to do what you want to do. You're bought with Christ's blood. You've been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but the life that I now live by the faith of the Son of God, right? And that is a... I die daily. Absolutely. Moment by moment, second by every breath, dying. It's hard. It's impossible to do. But the Holy Spirit of God puts to death your flesh. Exactly right. And Russell can tell you horror stories and good stories of him being a doctor and that chain of command and being head over. It really can become this to you. And there is a powerful draw to it. But God is merciful. Isn't He?
And that's all good stuff, but, right? Good stuff, but. So we see this paradox, and we see that uh, Jesus speaks that. Look at Matthew 10. He further demonstrates this, and this is also part of our dying to ourselves. And this is what Melanie said. Look at uh, uh, Matthew 10, and look at 32 through 39. Whoever confesses me before men, I'll confess before my Father. And whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father. And this is what many... Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her father-in-law. And a man's enemies will be his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Doesn't that sound like blasphemy to us family lovers? And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That is a summation of Christian walk, isn't it? Dying to yourself and living to him. And we've all learned that lesson painfully. And hopefully we are continuing to learn that lesson. It is a giving up of self-control, isn't it? Self, self, self-pride. So we see this paradox. Jesus sums up his teaching with that. Next thing I want us to see, E, service. So everybody have this. Everybody has it, so I can erase it. Nobody needs this. Service honors the Father. Service. Where am I? Is this four? Service honors the Father. And what else do I have there? It honors the Father. And that would be found in verse 26. John 12, 26. John 12, 26. Jesus sums up His teaching. He says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my Father will honor. That word, I'm not going to talk about this because this is going to point to what Jesus is going to teach in chapter 13. When He talks about that the Master... The servant is not greater than the master. And we're going to be talking about this concept. I'm going to get into it next week. This service, he's talking about being a servant. The word servant is, kids, it is the word doulos. And it is the word slave. And we will talk about that next week. Jesus, we are his slaves. And we'll talk about the ramifications for that next week. As we did this in Philippians Paul is a bond servant, but we're going to be talking about this concept again. Service. We are his servants, and we are bought with his blood, and we are oblig. And we'll talk about that. But he's talking about service honors the Father, because we'll get into this in great detail next week. But just keep that in your mind, and we will further bring out this concept of slave and who we are. In Christ, everybody understand that one. I really want to get to this, uh, to this next one.
Look at what Jesus says. Verse 27. My soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. The word troubled is a meaningful word. And that word means, as I have in the notes, it means to be. It means agitated. Agitation. But it means horror. And it means anxiety. And it is a word that describes the the thought of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. So when he says his soul troubled him, do you understand the the complete meaning of why his soul was troubled? He who knew no sin is about to become cursed by his own father, forsaken by his father. The sins of his people are all going to be put upon him. He is going to be forsaken by His Father, bruised by His Father. That is a horrific thought to Jesus. First time ever separated from the Father. As a man, He's separated. So you understand His heart is trouble. He understands. That's why He sweats drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not the physical pain, although that's horrific. It is his spiritual pain and what he's about to accomplish. That he is going to be cursed and despised and identified with sin. So his soul is troubled. Everybody understand that? The thing that's so repugnant to him, the things that his holy eyes can't see. We do not understand that wrath of God, that He bore it. I think it's a wonderful exercise to think about it because we like the good things. Mm-hmm. You know, the forgiveness and power in Christ. And, but it cost God everything to save us. And that was the only way He could have done it. If He would have, could have done it another way, He would have. Wrath. So grace is 
free, but it's not cheap. That little silly saying, it's true. Wrath. He took the wrath of God upon Himself. He absorbed the wrath. That's propitiation. He became the wrath appeaser. So we understand that's why His soul was troubled. But what did He say? Father, save me from this hour? No. This is why I came. As He sums up His ministry to the believers, the unbelievers, and the skeptics, He summed up His coming he who knew no sin became sin. The light of the world comes into the world. The world loves darkness. He came into His own. His own received Him not. But the work of God is that those did receive Him. We are now in Christ because of what He did. So we see that. That's what troubled His soul so much. I want you to think about that this week. Uh, Free but priceless. Free but priceless. And so we thank him for that. The next one, his principal reason was his for his obedience was humility. Scripture says that he learned obedience through humility. He achieved perfect righteousness through obedience and through suffering, Scripture tells us. But that is a part of why He came. That is, He said, for this, for this purpose I came. And His desire was to glorify the Father in everything that He did. As an obedient Son, which teaches us what is required of us to be obedient children. So all these things... Uh, Let's look at uh, verse 32. He says, I came to glorify the Lord. A voice come from heaven. I, will glorify, I have glorified and I will glorify it again. Then uh, Jesus said, this voice, verse 30, this voice didn't come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Uh, and I've got these in backwards order, but... Uh, uh, we've got uh, being lifted up on the cross. If I be high and lifted up, and the lifting up in the cross draws all peoples to Himself. Now, does that mean that all men are saved? When He says all peoples, that means all peoples... Uh, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, that there will be a people group saved from every people group. He will save indigenous people. He will save the Chinese, the Japanese, the Iranians, the Iraqis. If you look at what goes on in this world today, you see the Spirit of God coming back around to Jerusalem, so to speak, and you see Iranians being saved, and we see all these things happening. He is in process of bringing all of his sheep into the sheepfold. And uh, in our favor, that's why the West is what it was, culture what it was. When the Holy Spirit forbade Paul to go East, we have no understanding of the ramifications of that. But you understand why is Russia and why is China, why is India such backward, you know, not starving to death but worshiping cows? It's because of the grace of God. 
and he went west. He went to the western civilizations, and now he's coming back around to Jerusalem, and you're seeing him work in all these nations. But he was lifted up on that cross to draw all people groups to himself. Not all men, but all people groups, Gentiles. And uh, so he is doing that. And he said, I will draw all peoples to myself, all types of people, from all walks of life. He's drawing all people to himself. Now, what does it mean when he says, the ruler of this world is cast out, now is the judgment of this world. So we got this concept, we've got the judgment of this world, and the ruler is cast out. What is he referring to? What is he referring to? Jesus says, The voice didn't come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who is the ruler of this world? Satan. Satan. And he is alluded to uh, several times in the Scripture what Jesus is talking about. We see him alluding to this uh, in uh, look at Matthew twelve twenty nine. What is Jesus summing up his ministry about the effects of the cross? It's going to save his people from their sin. It's going to do several things here as he sums up his teaching. Look what he says in Matthew twelve uh, twenty nine. He says. It's this concept of a house being divided against itself. The Pharisees accusing him of casting out demons by the prince of Beelzebub, who was the prince of the demons. Uh, he says, uh, look what he says, uh, verse 25, just to be quick here. Jesus knew their thoughts. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself won't stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, that shall be, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me and who does not gather with me. Jesus is saying, I have bound the strong man. Satan and the prince of the power, the ruler of this, I have bound him and I have made him ineffective anymore. I have overcome his power. I've overcome his influence when I was lifted up on the cross. So those who put their trust in me, we are no longer slaves to him anymore. We're not slaves of unrighteousness, but we're slaves to Christ. And the power that Satan had over us when we were his children, we've been adopted into a new family. And we no longer have the same uh, associations. And we're no longer suppressed by the devil. We used to couldn't do right, but now we can do right. Now we can obey when we couldn't. We have, we have conscience now. We have wills to be ch- that are changed by the power of Christ. So when he said the judgment that the ruler of this world is cast out, he also refers back. Remember what he said in uh, Luke 10.18? I love what he says here. Luke 10.18. There's a spiritual war going on, as you know. Christ has already won the war. When he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. The devil is thwarted. His power is thwarted. And he is finished, uh, metaphorically speaking. He will literally be uh, soon. But look at this, uh, 1018. Uh, 
look at the, this is after this, they go out and they're, heal, they're able to heal and, and the harvest and the laborers and they see great uh, revival in that area. Then the 70 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, don't rejoice at this, that your spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Uh, he rejoice, rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in the work that I'm accomplishing on the cross. And when he says lightning, the devil fall from the sky like lightning, he is taken from his, you know, uh, he was in the presence. Remember Job? He's in the presence of God, wandering around. He's an accuser of the brother. He's been cast out. He's been defeated. Judgment has been laid upon him, and he no longer is the accuser of the brethren anymore, right? In Christ, in Christ right. Christ. And, and this is going to predict. Remember what that the Revelation tells us? You remember Revelation 12? When he sees Satan cast out, Look what he says. A war breaks out in heaven. Revelation 12, 7. Michael and his angels fought with a dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they didn't prevail. There's not a place found for them in heaven anymore, so the great dragon is cast out. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, cast to the earth. This is predictive prophecy. That one day there's going to be a time when Satan is bound and he's no longer tempting the nations. This is sort of a predictive prophecy that I'm lifted up, the judgment of this world has come, and I'm going to bind Satan, and I'm going to judge Satan. And uh, just beautiful teaching that sums up the purpose of why Jesus came. Understand that? The judgment of this world has come. Sin is judged. And the question is, are you trusting in the one who bore your sin and satisfied the righteousness and justice of God? So that's what that means. The ruler is cast out. He's predicting. He's saying what accomplishes at the cross that Satan's purposes are thwarted and his power over his people, over Christ's people, are no more. Comments? Questions? Jesus sums up his teaching. Uh, uh, this is something I think is very interesting, and several of you have asked me this, and this is the explanation of this, if I have time. Uh, look what they say. The people, verse 34, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Remember, the people only had the law, they only had what the Pharisees taught them from the law. They didn't carry around a King James. They couldn't read it for themselves. Most of them couldn't read anyway. But this is what they've been taught. And they've been taught from the Scripture, but they've been taught wrongly. See, they've been taught that there is going to be a Messiah, and that Messiah is going to come, and He is going to rule and reign, and He is going to rise the nation up so the nation's no longer imprisoned. And so we see that in many scriptures. So that's what they're saying. They're saying they don't understand the concept of why He came and why He had to die and why He had to, to violate the law and be cursed and hang on a tree. They never could understand that. But it's all throughout the Scripture. But this is the verses they're looking at. If you just want to uh, write these down, this is what the illusions, and they would be referring to many verses. But look at uh, Psalm 89.4. Uh, it's a psalm that they were taught from, the, from an early age. 
this is what they believed about the coming Messiah. Uh, and they're talking about someone coming from the seed of David, from the from the from the kingship of David, from the from the fruit of David, from his physical lineage. Uh, he says, "Your seed I will establish forever, and build up your throne to all generations." See, the people thought this king that's going to come from the seed of David is going to be a king, a Messiah who's going to rule forever. So they would take that verse, and they wouldn't understand what is this about you dying? What is this about you? going into the ground and bearing fruit. They never understood it because their eyes were blinded. Look at the, uh, if you're staying in uh, Psalm 89.4, look at verse 28. They would have said, My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed I will make to endure forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. What is this? You're going to be a, a, a king and you're going to reign forever. What is this about you dying? They didn't understand that. They were taught wrong. Look at Messianic Psalm 110. Uh, they would have been taught this about the coming Messiah. And, and uh, you know, how would they have understood this? Uh, 10, 110 verse 4. You're a priest forever. So how can a priest who's going to be forever, who's going to come from Melchizedek's loins, uh, not the loins of uh, of, uh, of Levi and from uh, and from and from uh, Aaron, but this is going to be a different priesthood. I don't have time to expand on that, but they understood him to come forever. They misunderstood the scripture. That's what they're talking about here. You know what nine, six, and seven says? What does you know, everybody know? Nine, six, and seven Isaiah. We quoted it Christmas. It's from the Handel's Messiah. He takes this verbiage. Uh, and this great uh, hymn that uh, Handel, is it Handel? Handel. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, and they would have read this and they would have said, We don't understand. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son, and the government will be upon his shoulder. They thought he was going to be a, a Messiah figure. And, and the government would be, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father of the increase of his government. There's going to be no end on the, on the throne of David and on his kingdom forever. So they don't get it. They didn't get the first advent, and they missed that he's talking about the second advent and a lot of this fulfillment of prophecy. So that's why they're, that's why, how can you die on a cross? We thought you was going to come and set up an eternal throne. But they missed it. They missed it. And so uh, so they have an illusion of a Messiah figure that didn't come. And then uh, the last thing, just because of time, uh, you can look at this yourself later, uh, but just because of time, Jesus reiterates uh, this central truth, uh, this second I am, that I am light. He tells them, uh, as we try to finish this up, He says uh, in verse 35, uh, he says, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. Walk while you have the light. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Referring back to I am the light of the world. Referring back to that great I am proclamation. Remember at uh, the Feast of Hanukkah lights? Uh, he's re- reiterating back that I'm the light of the world that shines into the world and the darkness doesn't comprehend it. He goes back to that as he sums up his teaching. And uh, a little hurried, but I wanted to finish that because uh, I'm very excited about the next five chapters.
Any comments or questions as Jesus sums up why He came to the believers, the unbelievers, and the otherwise?